The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. It is so good today that at this moment... I am not staring into darkness. But there you are. I acknowledge there are still many of you at home, and understandably so. And it is my prayer that we will all be able to soon continue to gather. Now, I have purposely not done this over the last several weeks because I wasn't sure what you would do on the other end. I didn't want to make it awkward. But for those of you watching, you may consider to do it with us today. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some of you, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Lord, we ask now that as we take up your holy word that you will now by the power of the Holy Spirit, give life, that you will give instruction, that you will give clarity, and Lord, that you would direct us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake, as your people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. If today in the series of questions, those of you who entered this room were asked, if we'd have said to you, are you a Christian? Most of you, many of you would have agreed, yes, I am. If we would have followed with this question, Are you a minister? I doubt that many of you would have agreed. Most of you would have processed that question through the social framework in which we live to where in the culture around us we would define a minister as someone who serves in an official capacity in a church, someone who is normally paid. That's a pastor, by the way, or an elder of a church. Some are paid, some are not. But when the Bible uses the word minister, Does it mean the official capacity when it normally uses it? The word, biblically, and it's down at the very end of our text today, it's where Paul's building to in his argument, minister of the new covenant. The word here in the Greek is, see if you you can figure out what word we use with it, diakonos. What word we use with that? Deacon. It's a transliterated word. We use the word deacon. When we use the word deacon, what do we mean? We mean servant. So the word minister means servant, a diakonos. So here's the main idea today. Ministers or servants of the new covenant receive their commendation and competency from God. So it's very important we understand our terms today. So when I use the word minister, I mean a servant. I don't mean an official capacity in a church. Let me go back and review a definition I gave online a few weeks ago. 
The definition of gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is service to others. There's no period there. The sentence continues. Gospel ministry is service to others according to the dictates of Scripture in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. So a gospel minister or a minister of the new covenant serves others according to the dictates of Scripture in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. I have two overarching points today. First, ministers of the new covenant receive their commendation from God. Paul begins with two rhetorical questions. He's dealing with accusations that are flowing from Corinth. The source of these questions are coming from some teachers who have showed up in Corinth. This was happening to Paul almost everywhere he went. There were these people who saw an opportunity. They would come in behind him and they would take the gospel and twist it, which means it was no gospel at all. And one of the things they would do is call Paul into question. So they were questioning two things about Paul, or accusing two things. First, that Paul was arrogant, and secondly, that Paul was unqualified. You see those two things in these questions. First question, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? The answer is no. Now what is to follow is a commendation, but it is not a commendation of Paul by Paul, but of the Lord. Paul is commended of the Lord. So Paul understood this principle. He stated it clearly in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18. So if you flip over a few pages, he says, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved. So those two words are very similar. So you could actually read this sentence. It is not the one who approves himself who is approved. But the one whom the Lord approves or commends. I remember one time I was sitting with a couple of individuals and they were having a very intense and long conversation. And one of them in the conversation had been commending himself, talking about himself repeatedly. The other individual said to, said to him, why do you always talk about yourself? I'll never forget what this guy said. He said, it's very easy because nobody else will. And, and quite frankly, that's kind of where we've come culturally. We're all so much for ourselves that it is very normal for someone now to commend themselves. It's a, 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 a problem throughout the history of mankind. And Paul's saying we as believers, as followers of Christ, do not need to commend ourselves. It is the Lord who commends us. Second question. Or do we need, as some do, so Paul's given a legitimacy here. Letters of recommendation to you are from you. So Paul's not completely against a letter of recommendation. In Acts chapter 18, verse 27, we are told that he wrote a letter to the brothers and sisters in Achaia at Corinth for Apollos. But the issue is at hand here is does Paul need such a letter? Now why would he raise this accusation? He goes back to you saying, well, he's, he was arrogant. No, he wasn't arrogant. Verse 2 tells you why he doesn't need such a letter. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You say, okay, well, what's the argument here? It's very simple. How did the gospel get to Corinth? Who brought it there? Paul. It is Paul 
who for the very first time brought the gospel that these people did not know, had no knowledge of, no basis for. Paul shows up at great cost, when you read it in Acts, at great cost to himself and preaches the gospel and it is believed. So Paul is saying, you are our letter of recommendation. It is written on your heart to be known and read by all. So Paul is saying that the evidence that he is who he claims to be and that this gospel is true, the evidence is in the changed lives of the Corinthian believers. Because of what God has done among the Corinthians, Paul is legit. Or you can say it this way very broadly. Evidence of gospel ministry is changed lives. It's not because we write letters or get certificates or degrees. The evidence that we are doing gospel ministry is the changed lives of people to whom this gospel is proclaimed to and to, it, to whom it is taught to. Now, what is this nature of this letter? He describes it in verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. This is very important you get the order here. Who is the author of the letter? Christ. This letter is from Christ. So Paul's saying it's not even from me. This originates in Christ. It is delivered by us. So who's Paul? He's a mailman. He's just the one delivering the news. He's a herald of the good news. He's just a mail carrier. This letter is not of human origin. It is written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. This is from the Spirit of God himself. And these words are living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Then he says they're not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, here's where Paul gets hard. He just switched metaphors. We went from letters to tablets. So what is a tablet of stone? What's a reference to? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Ten Commandments or the law? Let's be a little broader. It's the law of God. So the tablets of stone, which Moses descended from from Mount Sinai. So he's saying this is not written on tablets of stone. Now, God wrote on those tablets. You remember that? So he's not written on tablets of stone. Where is God written? The tablets of human hearts. So he has an allusion to the law, and then he has, not an illusion, an allusion, then an allusion to the promised new covenant. Let me just read from two foundational texts of understanding the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, Ezekiel says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I shall be their God. So he's going to remove the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. Now, let's be very careful that we don't assign negativity to the use of flesh here. The word flesh means alive. So you've probably all seen Dr. Oz, right? Whether you like Dr. Oz or not, it's not what's important. I saw an episode one time where Dr. Oz had a heart from a cadaver of someone who had died of heart failure and a, a good, healthy heart. And he had people from the audience come up and touch it. So the heart that had died, the person who died of a heart attack, he said, what do you feel? They said, it's hard. 
So that's what the hardening of the arteries, that's what causes a heart attack. You feel this other, what do you feel? It's, it's soft, it's pliable. That's what he means by heart of flesh. It, it's alive, it's functioning, it's living. Now here's the difference. I think, I think this is where this illustration has got to come home to us as modern Christians. Jesus did not do bypass surgery on you. He did a heart transplant. He didn't fix your old heart. He removed it. And he placed within you a heart of flesh. And here's what he did. This living, beating heart for God. In Jeremiah, he says, he writes his law on our hearts. It's no longer something outside of us. It's something inside of us. So this begs a few questions. Has your heart of stone been removed by the power of the gospel and been replaced with a heart of flesh? In other words, do you desire the things of God? Has God's law been written on your heart? Is, is the trajectory of your life been changed? Is there evidence that it has been written by the Spirit of the living God? Do you have a living faith? Is Christ in you? It's not just something that you believe about Jesus. Has something radically happened to transform you? Now let me ask you a question. If you can answer yes to those things, if you can answer yes to those things, if you'd say no, then first look to Christ and believe. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. If you say that I have, I have a question. If God can change the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, can he make you competent to serve him? Now, this is a major question. I see the modern church frozen right here. We believe Jesus can save us, but then we push back and say, oh, I, 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 just, I, I can't do that. The argument here of the Bible is if God can change you and save you, then he can make you competent to serve him. Second point, ministers of the new covenant receive their competency from God. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. There is no hint of self-confidence here. I reject every form of self-confidence with Jesus tagged on to it that's swirling through the modern church. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It is a way to tag Jesus onto something and make you feel better about what's already in you. You don't need to feel better about what's already in you. You need to trust in Christ in you. You need to look to Christ and see that your confidence is from Him. We have through Christ, by the means of Christ, that is through the finished work of Christ, it is through Christ alone that we are saved, and it is through Christ alone that we are made confident. Now, where is this confidence directed? Read verse 4 slowly. Such is the confidence we have through Christ, what? Toward God. I'm glad you're back here today, and there, there is a level of accountability in preaching with a congregation. God designed it that way. You help keep me from heresy. But here's what is more sobering to me. I preached this morning in the sight of God. 
And I come this morning to proclaim his gospel with confidence through Christ toward God. We came together and we prayed a few moments ago. We're told in Hebrews that we come with confidence into the very throne of God and we pray. This same confidence in which I am preaching and which we come to pray is the same confidence that we all share for the sake of the gospel. You say, well, you, you don't know me, preacher. I don't know you, but I know me. And thanks be to God for what follows in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. If you're using a pen, underline the repetition. Sufficient, sufficiency, sufficient. The ESV translates it the word sufficient, meaning adequate or enough. If you're using the New American Standard, it uses the word adequate. The Christian Standard Bible translates it the word competent. Not that we are competent in ourselves, but our competency is from God and who's made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. So the word competent means capable or having the necessary skill or ability. You say, okay, well, Jeff, which is it? Yes. I almost wish we had like a hyphenated both words here. Because you as a modern person need to hear God saying to you, he has made you adequate. And you also need to hear him say to you, he has made you capable. That you have the necessary skill or ability. Nothing comes from us. We don't claim anything is coming from us. If we did, that's egocentric. That's focusing on me or what we can do. But we are theocentric. This is from God. Our sufficiency, our competency is from God who has made us adequate and capable to be ministers. See the plural nature here? ministers of a new covenant. God has assigned this to us. You say, well, Paul's talking about himself here. I think contextually at this moment, he is talking about himself and his team. But if you follow the argument through the rest of 2 Corinthians, he's ever widening the scope of who he's talking to. So he has made us adequate to be ministers of the new covenant. And then he defines it what it's not and what it is. It is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We switch metaphors again. So let's make sure we got the right thing in our mind. So what does letter mean? By the hint, it means the same thing as the tablet of stone. The letter means the law. You've heard the phrase, the letter of the law. So it is not of the letter of the law or of the law, but of the Spirit. For the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the question is, is the law bad? No. And I would say, I agree with you. The law is not bad. Because the law is necessary for us to see our sin. That's where he's going to go in verses 7 and following. He's going to argue that the ministry of condemnation that comes from the law was necessary. Otherwise, you would have never seen your need for Christ had you not known you had broken the law of God. 
So the law is not bad. It is necessary for us to be saved. But can the law be used in a bad manner? The answer is you better believe it. And that's what these teachers were sweeping in behind Paul. And the most confrontational book where he goes after these false teachers is the book of Galatians. And here's what he basically says. If you add to or take away from the gospel, you are anathema. You are accursed. Now, don't you think it doesn't happen here in good old Gastonia? Don't you think it doesn't happen in a Baptist church? What happens is people take the law and they use it as a means to achieve salvation. You've all heard people say, I grew up in the church, I've never done anything bad. You know what they're really saying? I deserve salvation. No, you don't. And you're wrong if you're lying to yourself that you think you've never done anything bad, that you've never sinned, that you've never broken God's law. Because if you break it at any point, Jesus said, you've broken it all. So people use it as a means to salvation. But where it gets really tricky, and all of you have likely done this, that you've got to keep God's law to keep your salvation. You just, or you're going to sing in a minute, he will never pluck us. Nothing can pluck us from his hand. You know, what, you know who that includes? You. Me. I can never pluck myself from the hand of God. Those who are in Christ are in Christ, period. But people take the law of God and they twist it to manipulate people. Our founding pastor, M. O. Owens, wrote a commentary on 2 Corinthians. I'm quoting him. Even the word of God in human hands can become an instrument of manipulation. Paul has seen this take place at Corinth, so he is urgent in his declaration that the letter kills, but it is the Spirit with total freedom, who gives life. Now, how do we know this? Now, let's turn to Jeremiah 31. It's right almost in the middle of your Bible. So turn over there with me. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. This is a foundational text to understanding all of Scripture. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days of coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, what? New covenant. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took him by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. So what was written on the tablet, they broke it. He says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In other words, I took care of them. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the word of God, by the Spirit of God, it is the power of God, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. When the gospel is proclaimed and the Spirit of God opens our eyes to our sin, our need of Christ, and our hope that is in Christ and Christ alone, a work of the Spirit comes that changes, that gives life. 
Now turn back to 2 Corinthians. This is where Paul's building to. And I'm not taking away anything, and we're going to have plenty to say until we get to this point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says this verse, that if you've been around the church very long, you know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means some people are not in Christ, but here's who is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm going to use two big words, and I'll try to define them. So is verse 17 describing justification or sanctification? You know what the answer is? Yes. Justification is the doctrine that says that the righteousness of Christ has been applied to all who trust in him by faith. That is, a righteousness that is not your own. That before God, all who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone are justified. All are declared righteous. The old is gone. He didn't just clean you up. He made you brand new. The new has come. Sanctification. Sanctification is the acknowledgement that the new has come and that you have new life in Christ and that you are becoming like Christ in your actual lives. That you are more like him today than you were six months ago. If anyone is in Christ. See, that's the key part. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Then behold, the new present tense. It has come. So Christ is in us and we are in him and we are becoming like him. Christ has made us new and he is making us new. That means we are competent. That we are capable people. Now hear me clearly on what I'm going to say next. To deny, if you are a Christian, to deny that you are competent is to deny the sufficient work of Christ. So I come back to where I started this morning. As a Christian, I'm speaking to the Christian now because there's some in this room who are not Christians. You first need to look to Christ and believe. You need to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. But as a Christian, do I realize that I am a minister of the new covenant? Let's go back to verse 17, reread it, and follow Paul's logical conclusion with verse 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Did you have anything to do with making yourself a new creation? No, you did not. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, don't miss it, gave us, who's us? Verse 17, who's us? Anyone who is in Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So all this is from God through Christ, reconciled to himself. That's our commendation. That is the only commendation that we need. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There is our competency. So, brothers and sisters, 
are you a minister of the new covenant? If you are in Christ, you are. Now, let me tell you why you're struggling with that. For, for years, and if you are a Catholic who came here today, I'm not trying to demean you at all. I'm just trying to explain historical theology for a moment. The Catholic Church was responsible for separating the world into two spheres, the sacred and the secular. Unfortunately, most evangelicals still see the world that way, that there's the sacred world and there's the secular world. That's why we have Christian music. That's why we have Christian places to go, sacred and secular. Now, where this is most shown is if I were to say to you, do you have a secular job? Now, the reformers came along and said, we reject that. Read Luther or Calvin or any of those early men. They rejected that. One of the people that Luther writes about an influence was his barber, which, by the way, my barber who passed away two years ago, probably the best teacher of the Bible I've ever met. You know, I know that because he taught me the Bible while I was sitting in his chair. And I heard him repeatedly teaching the Bible to people who were sitting in his chair. It's an understanding of vocation. So go home, look it up. Look up vocation. The first definition, if you have a thorough dictionary, the first definition is not what you think it's going to be. It's not going to be career or place of employment. That's going to be the second definition. The first definition is still the same and where the word came from. You know what the definition is? One word, calling. Calling. So as I'm looking around this room today, see a mechanic and a guy in education, a doctor, retired person, dental hygienist, real estate agent you're all called all of you if you are in Christ you are a new creation wherever you go Christ goes wherever you go Christ goes and he has given you something to take with you wherever you go you know what it is the ministry of reconciliation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So brothers and sisters, quit living a false dichotomy that I'm in the ministry and you come to value from it. If you are in Christ, we are in the ministry. We are called to serve others according to the dictates of Scripture through or by the gospel of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God. We all are. So let us embrace it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for speaking to us and speaking to your people. Now, Lord, I plead and I pray in the name of Jesus that it will be embraced that we will embrace who we are in Christ. And that when we rise to leave here in a few minutes, we will leave with the truth of this song, shaping not just what we did at church, 
but how we live our life, that it is in Christ alone. In his name we pray. Stand. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.